Welcome to Voices from the Vernacular Music Center. I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Roger Landis. And this is a podcast from the Vernacular Music Center at Texas Tech University. The Vernacular Music Center is a center for teaching, research, and advocacy in the world's vernacular musics and dance. That is, musics and dance which are learned, taught, and passed on by ear and in the memory. In this second series, produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts, we talk about how the VMC engages with music and dance from around the world, and about the connections and the history and the community meaning of these art forms. We hear from players, scholars, dancers, builders, and listeners about times and places and people, and together we discover and celebrate the webs of human meaning which connect all of them. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to continue with our series of guest interviews, talking to friends and professional acquaintances from across the worlds of music, dance, theater, and humanities about why and how they do what they do. Dr. Ron Milam is Associate Professor of History at Texas Tech University and Executive Director of the Institute for Peace and Conflict, which includes the Vietnam Center and the Sam Johnson Vietnam Archive. Ron. We'd like to start these guest episodes by inviting people like yourself to reflect upon the idea of the vernacular, whatever that means to you, and how it intersects with your own work. But even before that, maybe we could start out by asking you, Ron, about your day job and about the life events that brought you to that gig. My day job is as a professor of military history here at Texas Tech University. I came into this job because I had been in the oil and gas industry for 27 years and kind of got bored with that um, and went back to school and earned a PhD uh, at the age of, I think, 54 years old. Um, in studying to uh, about military history, I studied, I took a course on the Vietnam War. That course was an undergraduate course. And what I found in that course and incidentally, I am a veteran of that war. But what I found in that course is everybody was talking about it having been like the war had been fought in Saigon, Hanoi, and Washington, D.C. And nobody was talking about soldiers, airmen, Marines that had fought in the war. So that became my scholarship. So I have spent the last 15 years doing research. I've been back to Vietnam 16 times since the war. I take students almost every other summer to Vietnam. Uh, I am in love with Vietnam now, not before. And so that is my scholarship. And as, um, as you introduced me and said, I'm in charge of the Vietnam Center and Archive, which is the largest archive of the Vietnam War in the world. So I'm very pleased to be in that position at Texas Tech University. So Ron, you mentioned the largest Vietnam archive in the world, the Sam Johnson Vietnam Archive uh, at the Vietnam Center. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that? How did that come about? How long has, has that archive been there? The story is that a woman walked into the history department in 1988 with a stack of letters that her son had written her while he was in Vietnam. And he said, does anybody care anything about this sort of thing? 
And uh, the professor at that time, uh, the uh, history professor who was also a Vietnam veteran by the name of Jim Reckner, said, yeah, I t I'll, I'll take him. I'll take a look at it. Uh, that started the archive. It's now 38 million pages. And um, in addition to the uh, that, we have 10,000 books, um, which is uh, you know not not even all of the books that have been written on Vietnam. But it was really kind of a humble beginning that somebody was interested in this. I happened to be working in uh, in the oil and gas industry in Houston at the time, and I remember reading an article in the Houston Chronicle, and my first comment, the first thing that I thought about was, "Gee whiz, I didn't know that even anyone even cared." And here it is, Texas Tech University is caring about that. And so about uh, 15, 20 years later, maybe I became a professor here. Very fortunate. You know, that's a fascinating story. I've been on the Tech campus a long time myself, Ron, and I've been, of course, aware of the archive in the Vietnam Center. And you and I have known one another quite some time. But I didn't know that you had looped back to Texas Tech. That, that's a, that's a, a, a small nugget that comes out of this kind of conversation. It's a wonderful human part of this whole podcasting thing. Another thing that we like to ask people about, because we are the vernacular music center at Texas Tech, and that word vernacular has different connotations, and we use it because we intend certain connotations. But in the spirit of a, a very open-ended kind of podcast conversation, can you tell us about how the idea of the vernacular, whatever that means to you, how it intersects with the work that you do here at Texas Tech? I think of the word vernacular not so much as meaning ordinary, but meaning community. Um, there is nothing more community than a group of soldiers at war. And so what I've tried to bring to my coursework is this feeling of we're going to talk about what it must have been like for those who served. And while mine is the history of the Vietnam War, it could be the history of uh, the uh, op Operation Iraqi Freedom. It could be Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, the wars of our current uh, student population. So from my perspective, vernacular really means the study of or the thinking of or the memory of those who did whatever it is you happen to be talking about. In my case, it's war. Sadly, it's war, um, but it is. So I, I think of it as community, the community of, of uh, soldiers who fought in Vietnam. Certainly, I think that, that makes total sense. And and communities have their own vernaculars, whether it's jargon or slang or technical language, or just ways of seeing the world or ways of perceiving their shared experience. And it seems to me there's something particularly uh, central there also in the idea of an archive, because an archive, after all, captures all kinds of materials. We scholars call them ephemera, letters and postcards and printings and cassette tapes and flyers and all manner of physical objects, which themselves constitute not only a kind of shared context-specific language, but also kind of recapture an experience. So do you see vernacular components to the way that you want the archive to operate? Yes. We take the position at the archive that we will accept anything that 
uh, pertains to a soldier or a Marine or an airman or, or a sailor's experience in Vietnam. Now that has, has brought us so many different things. In addition to four helicopters, non-operational, we also have, maybe uh, be careful how I say this, we have, we have a very large collection of pornography because soldiers got things sent to them from around the world, uh, no censorship. We also have a very large gun collection that we have in a gun safe and that we have the ATF come and check on frequently to make sure that we're under uh, abiding by all of the rules. But our the, what makes our archive so different than say the National Archive, it, it, um, uh, National Archive 2 at, at College Park, Maryland, is that we've got these letters and we've got these uh, letters home, letters home to their uh, mother, letters home to their spouse, to their children in some cases, and letters back to them. And that is a trove of information that is just phenomenal. And um, we also do oral histories. We have done over a thousand oral histories. And those oral histories are uh, all transcribed and available to uh, researchers uh, with keyword search. So uh, we used to say that anyone that wants to do a write a book on the Vietnam War has to come to Lubbock, Texas. We can't say that as much anymore because we have now digitized one third of our material. Now, a lot of it's copyrighted, so we make them come into our reading room and use our computers to do that. But it's just an amazing collection that people from all over the world access. In fact, uh, we have had more Vietnamese come to Lubbock to study their side of the war because the archives to them, the military archives in Vietnam, are really not um, accessible by most people. Interesting. Uh, Ron, my earliest memories of the Vietnam conflict were as a six or seven year old in 1966, my cousin David Cook was serving as a, as a medic and he would write letters to us and, and we would read them. And I think he was very careful what he wrote because he knew that uh, uh, his aunt and uncle, my parents would be sharing it with us. Um, that makes me wonder about memory and public perception of the war. Do you think that the public's perception or understanding of the experience of the individual soldier has improved in the last 20, 30 years? Is, is, is it better than it was? Perhaps it's slightly better, but most people's knowledge about the, and I'll use this phrase, the American war in Vietnam, because Vietnam was a war for a thousand years before we ever showed up. But the American war in Vietnam, the, the memory that most people have is what was presented to them by Hollywood film. And those movies started being made um, almost during the war, but certainly shortly thereafter, after America lost the war in 1975, when, when Vietnam fell to the, to the communists in the North. And so the memory is, has been uh, tainted, I would argue, by Hollywood. Um, so I think that um, hopefully that courses like I teach, uh, I probably spend as much time 
trying to change what students know from having watched movies like Platoon and Apocalypse Now. Um, and and so, uh, so, so much of what I do is trying to not, not exactly change their ideas, but to show them perhaps another side that's different from what Hollywood showed them or perhaps what uh, Uncle Joe told them. Uh, and now, of course, it's Grandpa too. Um, so, so I see my job as sort of myth, uh, myth breaking a little bit. Um, but I think that's important because it all fits in. We, we do that with, with all wars. I, I teach World War II also, but it's easier to teach World War II because every, almost everyone's dead that was there. Um, now the Vietnam veterans are still alive, and, uh, and I sometimes get people saying, well, that's not what my grandpa told me. Uh, and so sometimes I say, well, if your grandpa's got an email, have him or got a computer, have him call me, have him send me an email and I'll talk to grandpa. And that helps sometimes too. Yeah. It's a fascinating part of being, it's, it's like the most public of public historian work because not only are you dealing with popular culture and this huge diversity of clients who come in to want to work with the archives materials, but you're also dealing with a series of historical events, which do have this sort of media history parallel to maybe even separate from either the archival or the documentary history. There's the sort of the history of perceptions of that war. I also, I, I knew I had older relatives who served in that period but certainly my awareness of the Vietnam conflict while it was going on had mostly to do with domestic politics and stances about, about the war, op opposition to the war. And then a whole bunch of films that came out in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, which were all metaphorically about the war, but they, didn't, they, were, they were mythic and metaphorical, you know, Westerns or alternative Westerns. And so it's, it's I, I imagine you must constantly find yourself in the position as somebody who served, but also somebody who spent decades working with this material and, and working with people from across all sides of the conflict, which is something I want to get into, the people who come from elsewhere, people who served for the North and people who come for the conferences. You must constantly be dealing with people who come in, who bring in sets of perceptions and expectations, even including, as you're saying, Uncle Joe, who might have been there. Yes, there's no question about that. Uh, we, we, we pride ourselves in being able to cover all sides of the war. We have one of the largest anti-war collections. Um, we, are, uh, we, have done, uh, we have done oral histories of many um, people active in the anti-war movement. One of the things that's always interesting to me is on the first day of my Vietnam War class, I, and I usually have 150 students in that class, I ask the question, how many of you had relatives who served in Vietnam? And I get a lot of hands that go up. And then I say, have, did you, anyone have someone who, who was killed in the war? And, and, and we get a few of those. And then I say, do I have anyone in here that who's, uh, who had a relative who served, uh, was active in the anti-war movement? And virtually no hands go up. And I say, okay, come on. I know that some of you did. So let me tell you this story. I said, my wife, at, who was my wife at that time's entire family, 
were active in the anti-war movement out of the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, Michigan. So I said, anyone else want to raise their hand now? And then I get a few hands go up. I said, we don't, we, this war was 50 years ago. We don't have to worry about what someone's attitude was towards that war. And so I want you to feel very open about anything I'm going to say or anything that your family is going to tell you about that time in the 60s and 70s. So I mentioned my cousin David, who had served and uh, I didn't have a tremendous awareness of the of the of that war, and was influenced by Hollywood. Um, I was uh, coming of age about the time those films started to arrive on the market, and it was years later that I got um, a book that was co-written by a friend of yours, Ron uh, Joseph Galloway. Um, the film called "We Were" or the book called "We Were Soldiers Once and Young," which details both sides of the first major battle involving American ground troops in Vietnam in November of 1965, uh, the battles of the Yadrang Valley involving the 7th Air Cavalry. Um, and you brought Joe to speak uh, on Veterans Day in 2011, I think it was, and I was fortunate enough to be at his talk and to meet him and, and uh, talk to him afterwards. One thing that really impressed me about that book was that he and his co-author, uh, the commander of the American forces at that battle, uh, uh, Colonel at the time, Hal Moore, was that they researched both sides of, the, of that battle and presented it in what seemed to me a very balanced way. And I remember coming away from reading that book, just feeling the tragedy of, in my case, farm boys, from Missouri going to Vietnam to fight farm boys from Vietnam and, and just wishing that it, you know, could have been avoided that maybe they could have met under different circumstances. Maybe they could have understood one another in a different way. Um, and so I'm wondering if the, this process of history of research of travel, now that we have this distance from that, from that, battle from from that war and the and the battles is there a change between is there exchange is there exchange between men who served men and women who served on the the um, Viet Cong and North Vietnamese side of that conflict and veterans and historians scholars like yourself Absolutely. And I'm so glad you said those good words about Joe Galloway. He is a close friend of mine. Um, the, one of the most amazing things about Joe and, and Colonel Moore that wrote the book, General Moore, um, was that they went back to Vietnam in 1991, which was four years before America even opened diplomatic relations with Vietnam. They went at, at, at a big risk because it was a communist country and um, and visa issues and uh, excuse me, not visa, well, visa issues and certainly passport issues were, were, were still, people weren't wanting anyone to go to that communist country. And Joe and, and Hal went there and met with the men who had, they had fought against. 
It's an amazing story that they wrote because they did try to show both sides. And quite frankly, even the film, We Were Soldiers, the Mel Gibson playing Hal Moore, um, was pretty good um, in terms of trying to be accurate because Joe and and Hal maintained editorial rights over the f- making of that film. They weren't going to, and that's why it, it took uh, another 11 years before they could find somebody that would do it the way they wanted it to be done. It's a pretty accurate film. Um, in terms of our interchange with uh, the enemy, the former enemy, when I take my students to Vietnam each summer, we, we meet with some of those men. And uh, they always get a kick out of watching two old soldiers uh, tell, tell war stories to each other, as I do with, uh, with one of my friends, Bao Nin, who, was, uh, who we, we're not sure we ever met on the battlefield, but we were in the same places at the same time. And um, and so, you know, I sometimes think that the relationship between former soldiers of of both sides is all cl- almost closer than the relationship between those who maybe were fortunate enough to to not have gone at all. Uh, and I don't say that in criticism of anyone. I just say it because it's kind of the truth. We do have something in common. Um, so yeah, and I have had um, bound in and speak in my class. I've, we've had him at our conferences. He was one of the featured people in the Ken Burns um, in the Ken Burns 14-hour Vietnam War film. Um, so yeah, and we have a lot of archival material. Um, we even have some archival video of the North Vietnamese battles. So it's very important to study both sides, every side. So that leads me to a follow-up about which I'd love to hear more, which is when scholars from the North come to uh, to the center and to the archive here in those conferences, it's, it's an annual conference, is it, Ron? Yes, annually. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so it, it's some of us will be familiar with the typical academic conference, and there are panels, and there are keynote lectures, and there are special exhibits, and special events and all those kinds of things. But I'd like to, I'd love to hear more about sort of the day-to-day of the conference, like who comes and in, in those moments, what, what's uniquely valuable? Maybe we could say it that way. What is uniquely, what can only, what synergy can happen then in those moments with all of those different people from different experience in the room together? My first exposure to a conference uh, was in 2004. I was a visiting professor here at Texas Tech. And uh, my my predecessor, uh, Dr. Jim Reckner, um, had invited the Vietnam veterans against the war to present a panel. And he had invited the swift boats, swift boaters, who were the ones that were trying to keep John Kerry from being elected president of the United States. And he put them both in the same plenary session. And we brought in the we had to bring in police for that. And, of course, all the VVAW guys were wearing their camel fatigues and their long hair down to their shoulders. And all the swift boat guys, mostly attorneys, were in their in their uh, suits suits. But quite frankly, the VVAW and Jim Rector told me the VVAW guys were actually more polite than the some of the Swift voters were. But I tell my students this, if you ever want to present at a conference, and if you ever want to go to a conference, the Vietnam, uh, the now the IPAC and Vietnam Archive uh, conferences are the most exciting conferences you will ever go to. Not at all boring. We invite 
veterans to make presentations, and they always list themselves as independent scholars. We have faculty from around the world. We have students, graduate students. We actually pay and give scholarships, travel fellowships for students to come from, uh, the last year we had students from Cambodia, we had students from Laos, we had students from Vietnam, we had students from England, from around the world, and we try to fund them to, to let them come. And then um, we have these panels. And it's usually a three-day conference. And sometimes Vietnam veterans will get up and try to take on a graduate student. So I always, I'm very careful about who I put on as chairs of panels. Usually at most academic conferences, the chair is the easiest job that you can have. At our conferences, it's a referee. And it's pretty exciting stuff to watch. It's a kind of art form to be a good chair, actually, because sometimes you're a traffic cop and sometimes you're a mediator. Right. So is there a um, conference scheduled for this year? Yes. In fact, um, we just completed our virtual conference in April because of COVID. We had to do it virtually this year. And the excitement level from around the world for our conference was so big that this year, this coming year, which will be the April 22, it'll be the 50th anniversary of the year before America pulls out. Um, and uh, so the call for papers just went out this week. And we're moving the conference to Chapman University in Orange County. California. The reason for that is that is the largest Vietnamese American or Vietnamese refugee center in, the, in, in, in America. And so we're moving it out there. And one of the reasons for that is we think we'll be able to get a lot of Vietnamese graduate students who can fly into Los Angeles as opposed to having to fly to Dallas and then fly to Lubbock to, to come to our conference. Now, in 2023, which will be the 50th anniversary of the end of the war for America, we'll be back in Lubbock. But, uh, but we also did a conference in 2019. Our fall 2019 conference was done in Hanoi. And that was pretty exciting because I was able to take some of my American students there. And then the Vietnamese students were able to present in their own in their own hometown. That was pretty neat, too. So, Ron, can you tell us about the Institute for Peace and Conflict? Absolutely. IPAC is about four years old now. Uh, we put it together because we we believed that there was a need for scholarship that goes beyond Vietnam. We believed that there was uh, the current wars particularly were important. So we wanted to have an image out there that we were not just about Vietnam. That's one thing. The other thing is we created some actual IPAC courses. We have a we we now grant a graduate certificate in strategic studies, which is a 15-hour program, nine hours of IPAC courses, three IPAC courses, and then six hours of electives from anthropology, phil, uh, uh, political science, history, and law. And students can choose these electives any way that they want to do that. And and we have now put about 95 people through that program. We find that the uh, that the graduate certificate in strategic studies 
on top of the degree, uh, a, a master's or a PhD, has gotten some of our students jobs, not only in academics, but in jobs in um, military units. We have a student working at the UN now. Uh, we've got students working in very good jobs around the world. Um, so uh, so that's, that's part of that program. We also have a series of academic fellows where we give fellowships each year. Uh, to uh, across the entire university to people who are doing research on conflict issues or peace issues. Uh, for example, this year we have someone working on uh, in uh, human sciences working on a PTS. We have somebody in um, we have somebody in kinesiology working on the Olympics uh, as a as a way of of promoting peace. Um, so uh, so the program is is very broad uh, and it's very interdisciplinary, which. As you folks know, sometimes it's hard to get interdisciplinary programs approved around here. Well, we just did it. That's all. Well, one of the first reasons that we reached out to you for the purpose of guesting on the program, Ron, is because we know you as a historian and we know you as the as a as a leading light in the in the Vietnam archive and in and in the institute. But we also know you as someone who is a, a long term music head and for whom music has been another area of your scholarly engagement with with the Vietnam War. I recall very long time ago, and Roger will know that very, very long time ago, I produced a radio program in another city. And I remember doing at least a couple of episodes of that radio program on music associated with the conflict, and particularly a remarkable collection. I'd have to find it. I'll put it in the show notes. It's maybe by Smithsonian Folkways or Rounder Records, a small independent label of uh, reproductions of songs originally recorded on cassette by grunts who were singing country songs or singing their own new words to country songs and really being struck by the way that that, this is a, a CD from the 1980s based upon cassettes made in the 1960s, really being struck by the way that hearing the music that service people heard and especially that they sang for themselves um, there's a kind of granularity that it sort of immerses you into that historical experience in a way that a lot of other kinds of data might not do so immediately. So can you talk, maybe if you'd like, you can start up by talking about music in your experience during your service years, and then we can open outward from that. My experience with music was, first of all, I will tell you that I entered the uh, army from Detroit, Michigan. Last night, I went to sleep in Detroit, Michigan. Great song, I Want to Go Home, which has nothing to do with Vietnam. But if you're from Detroit, Michigan, it had everything to do with Vietnam. Um, from my perspective, uh, coming from Detroit, I was a Motown guy. Um, and um, I was in a unit. I, first of all, I was an advisor to the Vietnamese. So I wasn't around a lot of Americans. We were a small unit. And I was there very late in the war in 1971. But being from Motown, my music was the sounds of the Temptations and the Four Tops and Marvin Gaye and, and all that great music. Whereas a lot of my counterparts, a lot of my guys I served with were from small towns in, in uh, the South and the, their music was the music of Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton, a very young Dolly Parton, um, country music. And then there was the rock and roll. Well, of course, I'm a rock and roll guy too. So what the first thing that amazed 
amazed me about the music of Vietnam was that the generals in charge, General Westmoreland, General Abrams after him, they didn't particularly like the music of my generation, particularly rock and roll. You'll find you found very few rock groups that came to Vietnam as part of USO. Bob Hope came and he brought his music of World War II with him usually. And so from our perspective, there was something missing. And that very well may be the reason why a lot of these cassettes that you're talking about were produced because guys were singing the music of their generation, not the music of their parents' generation that was being given to us by, by William Westmoreland and, 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 and General Abrams as, as commanders in, in charge. So from my perspective, uh, Vietnam was a rock and roll war. And um, and and I, I will tell you this uh, story that that I think says a lot. Um, there was a my unit was in charge of the security of a of a road called Highway 14, which ran north and south uh, down through the right through the middle of Vietnam, all the way down to Saigon. We were in charge of the security of that road. And um, there was a, an engineering unit that served along with us um, that had a deuce and a half ton truck that had blown, been blown up. And it was actually the first American that I'd seen killed in the war just a few months after I got there. Um, and so they decided to build their own two and a half ton deuce and a half truck to armor plate it, to put 50 caliber machine guns on the top of it, put great big speakers on the vehicle, and then in very large words, wrote the name of this deuce and a half ton truck, Led Zeppelin, spelled L-E-A-D. Now, Led Zeppelin Three had just come out as an album. This would have been uh, 1970. It just come out as an album, immigrant song, big, big, big song that had come out of that period of time. And so they would take, they had a, a, a cassette player mounted in the front of this truck, speakers on the outside, and they'd put the immigrant song on and run up and down that highway and try to scare the hell out of anybody that wanted to mess with those Americans. But I'll never forget that because uh, Led Zeppelin was, you know, it'd been around since 68, but at that time to, to, to be throwing that kind of music out was pretty pretty amazing. Uh, so it kind of tells you the way we were thinking. We bought we bought all kinds of electronic um, equipment from uh, what they call the Paysex catalog, the Pacific Exchange catalog, TIAC, reel-to-reel uh, -reel recorders, uh, cassettes, uh, eight tracks. Um, and from my perspective, as, a, as an advisor with interpreters and translators that helped me communicate with the indigenous peoples of the Central Highlands, I used rock and roll music to communicate with my translators, to teach them English language. I can still remember one of my favorite songs that came out about that, what didn't come out at that time, but it was popular, was a song called The Boxer uh, by Simon and Garfunkel. And you, if you know that song, it's got so many words in it. It tells a great story. And I can remember still to this day teaching the language of Simon and Gar to my uh, interpreter whose name was Heck, uh, 
And he'd say, what does that song mean? And I said, let's not worry about what it means. Let's just worry about the words, because it was a very narrative song. Uh, so music was just part of everything that we did. Um, um, and, uh, and, and so, uh, I'm, you know, I, so to, to listen to that music today, I still listen to it. I'm a classic vinyl guy, uh, and, uh, and, and I can't get enough of it. So when you were there, how did you obtain music? Did you, were you able to order it through the mail? Was it sent to you? If the official, um, you know, if up, up the food chain of command was, was uh, discouraging or disapproving of of popular music, your music, how did you obtain it? My wife sent me cassettes. My brother sent me cassettes. Um, and, um, and I think everybody did the same thing. And then we would, we would uh, copy from each other. And then another totally illegal thing that we did um, was uh, when guys would go on R&R, they would bring stuff back. Or you could go to Hong Kong and you could go in a store in Hong Kong that had every vinyl uh, record ever. And they would make, put it on reel to reel for about 50 cents an album. And, uh, and so you would come back from R and R with all these reel to reels. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you put a lot of, you put a lot of albums on a, on a reel to reel. So that was one, one, one way that we got it. Um, I got a lot of cassettes sent to me from different people. So I still have all those cassettes in a, in a, in a, in a carrier. And sometimes it's fun to just go back and think now who sent me that one. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, that's how, that's how we got the music. In a way that the, the sharing strategies that you just talked about, is a way of vernacularizing what is essentially a commercial uh, music venture. Um, and, and that's fascinating. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And, and what would happen, we, we had a, uh, it's called a hooch where we all had our, uh, where we all slept. And when we weren't out on operations, there was just 15 of us, two five man teams and the screams of put that, turn that goddamn country music down, please. I can't hear, I can't hear the temptations, you know? And, and, and so you'd get in these little fights amongst yourselves uh, trying to, and, and music was everything. I mean, when we, because when you're out on an operation and we took, we took units out on operations all the time. Um, when you were out on operations, obviously you couldn't listen to music. You, you know, you, you were involved in uh, uh, command silence. But when you came back to the to your place to to sleep, uh, that's what you did. I I don't hardly ever remember not having music on on a daily basis when we were back, sort of in garrison units. Yeah, I I wanted to ask also uh, because. You know, like a lot of people have done some reading about that time and, and some reading about the, the frontline experience. And um, there was a radio network. The Armed Forces Radio Network was a thing, and it was a fairly substantial broadcast operation. But do you recall the programming? Did the programming include this kind of material, or were you having to source it other ways? Well, we sourced it other ways, and I don't remember if it was because we didn't like the music selections. I know there was a movie made called Good Morning Vietnam, um, 
And uh, Adrian Cranauer, uh, who uh, was played by Robin Williams in that film, we actually had him in Lubbock a few years ago. Um, uh, and, and he got in fights all the time about what kind of music are you going to be playing by his management. So it may have been that. Or, or it may have been that we just wanted to control our own situation. And you controlled your own situation by listening to your music. My music of Motown was probably, I think there was one African-American guy um, in another unit that he and I would listen, you know, get together and listen to the music together sometimes. Um, but basically, uh, I was sort of, I don't want to say an anti-country person at the time, but it just wasn't my thing. Now, it, much more so now, perhaps, but not then. It wasn't as big a deal for me, uh, but rock and roll and, 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 and Motown sound was. And so you wanted it to be yours. And it was there were so few things that you controlled yourself in Vietnam that the music was one of the things you could control. Yeah, that's a really powerful image to just think about people using music, particularly music from where they had come from, wherever, wherever part of North America, say the, the U.S. Armed Forces, from whatever part of the region of the country they'd come to use that music as a way to feel, as you're saying, in control of their of their environment or of the moment when they've come off an operation, and uh, certainly that's something that, in reading and hearing from other folks like yourself, as as a kind of marker of identity. You know, I'm a Detroit guy. I'm a I'm a Detroit guy, and I this is what I listen to. This is my music, and it connects me with this other Detroit guy who's in another unit, and it's really different than what y'all from the Deep South are listening to. So there's there's a real there's a kind of continuity of experience, but also a kind of continuity between North America and Southeast Asia. In and the music is is bridging that. It's creating that bridge. Yes, and and I will say also that um, the music of the anti-war move mu music was. I don't remember hearing a lot of it, even though many of us felt. The, you know, we're sort of against the war doing our thing, but it was sort of too depressing to listen to Phil Oaks uh, and some of his work. And he had some tremendous things. Um, uh, but I do remember Country Joe and the Fish, of course, Woodstock had just happened uh, right before I went over. And um, and I can remember, <laughs> I, I the only time I remember hearing anti-war music, I can remember when I was in officer candidate school down at Fort Benning, um, we were in formation one morning and one of the staff guys was playing uh, Give Me an F upstairs in the, loud, uh, in the loudspeaker. And we were all in formation. We couldn't help but, but crack up. Um, so uh, so the anti-war movement, Joan Baez and some of that music that we sort of would. But it was just too depressing to listen to. <laughs> um, in your exchange with scholars from Vietnam, has any information, kind of similar information about the role of music on the other side of the conflict, has that come about? Yes, in fact, I actually had uh, have a master's degree student, Chi Ha, who um, uh, uh, Chris was uh, was on that committee, uh, who did her master's on that. And and it, uh, one of the things that comes uh, that we notice is the music of the South, our allies tended to be um, to be the, the uh, well, both sides actually tended to be patriotic, uh, almost like some of the music that General Westmoreland was trying to get us to listen to, I guess you could say. Um, and yet there was sort of an underground 
of people wanting to listen to a different kind of music. Um, there were Vietnamese, usually women, Vietnamese women bands that would play r American rock and roll music as cover music in the officers clubs and the NCO clubs. And some of them were just damn good. I mean, they, they, they could, I can remember one band particularly doing James Brown that was just off the charts. It was as good as you would hear imitations of James Brown. So, so the music of the, of our allies was, was very much like ours trying to mirror our music. The music of the North was a little bit more controlled um, by the by the Communist uh, Party to make sure that they were listening only to the right things, but 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 quite frankly, there were you know the Amer soldiers are soldiers, and if they got a transistor radio out in the boonies somewhere where they could get a station, they'd be listening to the kind of music that they like. That's what all soldiers in any war have in common. So, Ron, you've mentioned your students, both American and Vietnamese, who study here, and the fact that you take American students to Vietnam to study there. Would you talk a little bit about what that dynamic is like teaching these two cultures who were formerly in conflict and now with the benefit of perspective and political change, what kinds of opportunities? It sounds like amazing opportunities are being created for both groups. I was very fortunate in 2012 to be named uh, as a Vietnam, um, uh, as a Fulbright scholar to Vietnam. And so I taught in, um, in Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, um, for um, six months for a semester. And the more I taught there, the more I realized we were missing something here, that there were so many great students that should be, be should be studying in America, and I knew they all wanted to study there. So we started recruiting very actively, and so um, we um, I, I recruited in the 2012. I brought two students here in 2013, um, and so I now have three women military historians: two from Hanoi, um, one from Saigon. Um, and I had a male student who is now at the Harvard Kennedy School, who with his, earned his PhD with me. What I found was that the perspective of them, who's in the case of the Hanoi students, whose grandfathers fought against us, um, they came here with a certain idea about America, a certain idea about the American war in Vietnam. Um, and so what a, what a privilege to teach those kinds of students. Um, in fact, uh, the last time I taught the Vietnam War course uh, in 2020, 19, I guess it was, I had three TAs, one from Hanoi, one from London, and one from Toronto. I thought, well, well uh, uh, no American is working for me on this class. That was pretty neat. I think, I, I think it really gave a perspective to my students that way. When I go back to Vietnam each summer, I am always looking for those students who would like to come study with us. And it appears that through some uh, fellow from some grants that we're going to be getting from the Defense Department of all places, um, that we're going to be able to actually bring more students on full rides from the U.S. government to study military history, 
specifically Vietnam at Texas Tech University. Uh, what a thrill. I mean, it just it's just amazing. One of the things, one of the downsides for them, not for me, but one of the downsides for them is that um, they're learning a lot from us and they're doing really great research. But several times they'll say things like, gee whiz, I wish I could take that back and teach it that way. And and it, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with teaching it that America won or nothing exactly like that. It's more along the lines of of the of looking at all sides of conflict, uh, because in their controlled state um, and with syllabi that have to be approved with very little academic freedom, they won't be able to do the things that we're able to do here. Um, but. I also think that there are ways that they will, when they do go back, they'll figure out ways to get the message that's important to the younger generation. And I also think that that the generation that's running Vietnam now is, uh, you know, they're the children of those that fought. And when we get to the grandchildren of those that fought in another 10, 20 years, I think that the a lot of things will will have been improved in terms of academic freedom. But my goodness, I I'm I'm the luckiest man in the world to be able to be teaching these kinds of students here at Texas Tech. Yeah, it's it, it really to be a teacher, something that we all have in common. To be a teacher, you have to be invested in the long game, in 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 generational change. And those generations are 20-year generations. They're not four-year undergraduate generations. And there is, I think that we would argue at the VMC that there is a role for scholarship of experience. There's a role for the study of the material culture of experience, whether it's cassette tapes or decommissioned firearms or letters home, uh, that, that the day-to-day -day of people's experience in people's experience in peacetime and in conflict at home or in a place that is very, very far distant from their experience. That day-to-day, -day, that's that's like the warp and weft of the of the cloth that historians try to weave. And it's also what we try to teach. It's what we we in a, in an open society, in a society with a lot of constraints, or in a society which has been open as now experiencing some pushes toward constraint. You know, historians, on my soapbox a little bit here, but I think historians, when they act responsibly and they think of the long game, they are, they are investing in the complexity of experience because investing in the complexity of experience acknowledges that all humans have complex experience, even if those experiences are contradictory and uh, sometimes in conflict. As they should be, we are all we are all different from each other. But we all, I think, we all have one thing in common, and that is that we we want to um, we want to understand the experiences that we've had in a in 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 the light of everything that goes on in our lives. And and I, I hate to say that there are some out there right now. A little bit of soapbox here too. That look at a historic the word historian as being uh, a pejorative phrase almost. Um, I'm proud to be a historian, and I'm proud to say that any student that comes through my program, whether it's learning about Vietnam or whether it's learning about um, the American Civil War, they will get from me everything that they need to think critically 
That's what historians do is think critically and they will be able to judge the things that they read and the things that they see. That's what historians do. We don't just we just don't accept every piece of crap that we read. We don't accept every piece of crap that we see on television. We think critically about stuff. That's what historians are supposed to be teaching. And so, um, so I'm I'm proud to 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 wear that uh, to to wear that label um, in this world that we're that we're living in right now with all the conflicts that we have. And it strikes me as uh, someone who considers himself particularly cynical that being a historian and teaching history, or or just teaching in general, but I think particularly teaching history, is one of the most optimistic uh, activities that I think a person. Uh, can have, but I'm obviously biased. Well, and I might argue that teaching history in certain historical moments is one of the most radical things that someone can do. You know, that reminds me, Ron, that you you had said earlier, we spoke earlier in the podcast about ways in which people use the music that they had from home or to create a sense of connection with home or to say, this is who I am, or to say, this is my space, I'm off operations, I'm in my space now. But you also were saying some things off mic about kind of wider issues around social identity and who served and how the diversity of music that you might encounter kind of reflected the diversity of the service, the, the makeup of the service core. Can you talk about that? There was actually um, in the rear, well, we have this phrase that I should throw out there. Anybody was there's a phrase called REMPS. Rear echelon motherfuckers. And those are the ones that didn't get out into the battlefield. And that's about 80% of the men that were there. Um, they were in the rear echelon. But those units that were out in the, in, the, in the field all the time came back to the rear echelon. And some of the great battles that took place that we hear about, the racial battles, took place in the rear, not out in the field, because out in the field, everybody was trying to keep each other alive, whereas in the rear, you know, it was downtime. So we, we know of situations where African-Americans resented the country music that they were hearing from the boys from Tennessee. And the boys from Tennessee couldn't stand listening to the Motown sound. Uh, and uh, about the and, and the white guys were maybe more so into rock and roll. And it's been exempt that's been shown in some of the films. Platoon, I think, particularly does some work with that sort of thing. What I found though was was a little bit different because I was not, like I say, I was not in an American unit. I was uh, working with the Vietnamese to, uh, totally, but um, but I did get to some of those places. And then in my scholarship, I have really studied that issue about the diversity of the work of the of the military force and in some ways I think that it's been there's a little bit of a myth that somehow or other we sent black guys to die and as a result of sending black guys to guys to, to die Martin Luther King got upset about and stuff like that I argue a little bit different. I teach a little bit different that the the American military force was pretty diverse. Perhaps it was missing on the socioeconomic class. Perhaps it was missing um, a large group of um, of rich kids, um, and that they were able to avoid the draft. They were able to get out of. They were able to get into the National Guard or their Army Reserve unit, or their dad knew somebody that knew somebody. But 
basically those of us that are now you know in our in our late years find each other and say well that's a pretty diverse group of veterans that we have black uh white uh hispanic we, we don't even know how many hispanics serve so we didn't keep track of hispanics back in those days but we know that as the veteran group we're very diverse so i argue that the diversity of the veteran group is very uh, much an example of what we were 50 years ago and that that's a positive thing and it's a positive thing in our outlook on life and our, our and the way that we bring our experiences in this war into the world that we live in today and the way that we teach our grandchildren and the way that we expose them to things. I think that's a much more positive thing than the image that we have of the, the divided nation that we have because the diversity of the Vietnam veteran collectively is very, very strong. Ron, can you say a little bit about the the ways in which women served in Vietnam. I mean, there's some popular cultural examples of, of women serving as nurses. I'm wondering if it was broader than that. And also if women are active in um, the activities with, with veterans. Approximately 68,000 women served in Vietnam. Um, and that number, most people think, is only around 11,000. But the truth of the matter is, there was a lot of civilian women that served with, uh, that were in Vietnam um, working for uh, uh, international corporations in Saigon. Uh, and when Saigon uh, was under, uh, under siege, uh, they were exposed. Um, but the 11,000 or so women nurses are the most terrific women that you will ever meet now or that ever met then. I, I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks in Pleiku uh, in 1971, and um, I couldn't believe the dedication of those those nurses. Not only were they doing um, jobs that, uh, and they were all officers, a, a, a female nurse is a, is a second or first lieutenant. Um, the things that they had to put up with from, uh, from male soldiers um, in terms of sexual assault, in terms of sexual harassment by male doctors, many of those male doctors, all, most of those male doctors who had been drafted working alongside a volunteer female nurse that was there were we didn't draft women but they volunteered to be there they were amazing and uh, if you want to want to see the tears roll from my eyes just introduce me to a nurse my age who served in vietnam because everything that they did was for the soldier um Doing things like going out into villages, I took some of them out into my villages to perform what we call med caps. They were the ones that gave the shots. I gave the candy, and they gave the shot. And uh, those little kids, or they delivered babies in the villages, and they helped with spinal meningitis vaccines, and just just tremendous uh, contribution. When I teach my course, I do a whole unit on women, so on women in Vietnam because they didn't have to be there. We did. We were drafted to go. They didn't have to be there, and they went anyway. Just tremendous. Well, Ron Milam, we knew that this would be a good conversation. I don't think that we knew that it would be a conversation that would go to as many different, important, powerful, and powerfully integrated places. But boy, do we thank you, and we hope that you will come back at some point in the future. Thank you, Ron.
Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Voices from the Vernacular Music Center is hosted by Roger Landis and Chris Smith and produced with funding from the Talkington College of Visual and Performing Arts. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the show notes for images, video and audio playlists, guest bios, and our links to online streaming and reference services. And please remember to like, share, and leave reviews. That's how more listeners hear about us. We tweet at Woke Academic and VMC Voices. Thanks once again to our guest, Ron Milam. Our post-production engineer is Gavin Stockard, and our VVMC administrative coordinator is Heather Belts. Check out her Possibly Haunted podcast. And you can find our website at vernacularmusiccenter.org slash podcast. Special thanks to our podcast consultant, SeedPod Productions, at SeedPodSound.com. And we'll see you the next time.